Why does every story have a villain? Ever asked yourself that question? You only need to talk to little kids and little kids talk about monsters, don't they? A monster might come and get them. Uh, One of the classic fears that uh, I noticed a little while ago uh, online that people seem to have is the fear of what could be in the cupboard uh, and the need to have the door closed. Some of you maybe even now you kind of think, no, I'm going to have the door closed on the cupboard. Uh, And and then if you actually go to... uh, kids stories classic kids stories what what do you find well you find there's a villain all the time in these stories from the big bad wolf to the troll under the under the bridge uh there's stories uh these stories have got villains in them then as we get older we have uh, villains like darth vader and darth maul and darth sidious uh and we've got the wicked witch of the west who hunts dorothy and Wallace, who uh, fights against Longshanks. And then we've got the Dark Lord, Sauron, the Orcs, and the Black Riders in uh, Lord of the Rings. And then there's countless other villains, aren't there? We've got Lex Luthor, the Joker, the Penguin, Electro, Loki, Magneto, and Asbestos Man. <laughs> Every story has a villain. You know why? Because yours does. Your story has a villain. In the Lord of the Rings, Sam says to Frodo, he says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Well, you've fallen into a story that has a villain and the villain in our story is the devil. The devil was a former angel of God and he turned against him. He wanted to make it all about him. He wanted to be in the center. You see, we live in a world that has a villain, but a lot of people don't actually believe the villain is real and this has interesting effects on people let me give you a couple of the effects that it has on people who don't believe that they live in a story with a villain it tends to either make them blame themselves as being cursed or they blame god for being evil either there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with god that's kind of the two options that you tend to end up at if you don't realize that you live in a story with a with a villain Now, Richard Dawkins, who uh, I've quoted before in the project, and I'm going to quote him again today. Um, We always like to quote atheists from time to time. Um, This is what Richard Dawkins actually said. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind pitiless indifference i would ask richard dawkins is this just bad luck is 21 coptic christians being beheaded on a beach by isis just bad luck and i would ask you today do you think that richard dawkins assertion of the world that the world is filled with just good luck and bad luck there's no ultimate good or evil do you think that has enough explanatory power to explain what you see in the world we see war famine betrayal, murder. We see Egyptian Coptic Christians beheaded, 45 people burned to death recently by ISIS. Really? Is it just pitiless indifference? Really? What do you think? There's more to it, isn't there? I mean, you look at that and you just go, that's no. Richard Dawkins' assumption or assertion about the nature of the world, it just can't be right. It just doesn't have enough explanatory power. 
C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who is held to be the power behind death, disease and sin. Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees this is a universe at war. Christianity has a far more powerful explanation for the world that you see around you than atheism does. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the next little section in Mark. We're going to look at villains, rescuers and forgiveness. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up. I'm going to put the scripture on the screen and we'll just read through it. Mark 3, verse 22 to 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. I mean, just note at this point in time the patience of Jesus. All right? Now, He's got a bunch of religious people from the church coming and telling him he's doing everything by the power of the devil. Now, if he is God Almighty as he claims, and as I think he demonstrated, he could just do something, couldn't he? He could turn him into a smear on the footpath, but what does he do? He starts giving them some stories, some illustrations about how they're wrong. It's very, very patient. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So today we're going to see three three things. We're going to see... uh, the villain of the story we're going to see that jesus has come to rescue you from the villain and we're going to see that rescue is impossible if you malign the rescuer here's the first one the villain of the story as i mentioned earlier the villain in your story is the devil he started out as an angel he wanted to make it all about himself um, that was never going to happen because god's always going to be in the center you can fight against him but he's always going to be in the center because that's what it means to be god the devil fought against him Uh, at some level he lost he got kicked out of heaven and he took a whole bunch of angels with him it looks like about a third of the angels and some of you would go how many is that and i'd say that's right a third because we don't know how many there are all together angels are created beings that god created to get his stuff done the really interesting thing about what the scribes are doing here and if some of you might remember um, last week I talked about the fact that Jesus' family came to him and tried to take him away. Does anyone remember why tried to take, they tried to take him away? Because they thought he was loony. He was insane. He'd gone nuts. This is kind of going up a notch, right? This is not just insane. This is like the devil is possessing you. You're actually possessed by the devil. It's one thing to think that he's insane. It's a whole other thing to think he's actually possessed. And the really interesting thing is if you go across to... Um, Uh, Luke chapter 11 is you actually find there's a little bit more context to this what's actually happened is there's a man there the man's uh, possessed by a demon uh, and it's the demon has made the man mute and Jesus has come he's kicked the demon out the dude's not mute anymore and a miracle's just happened and the the scribes actually make these accusations of Jesus after the miracle has happened 
The really interesting thing about the, uh, the people around Jesus of the day, and especially the religious people, is they play this riff a lot, where they say Jesus in, is in cahoots with the, uh, the devil. Listen to this from John 10, 19 to 21. There was, again, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So you've got this thing that seems to pop up every now and then where people are going, he's insane. No, he's not insane. He's actually demon-possessed. No, he's not demon-possessed. How can he heal people? And there's a bit of confusion that actually goes on here. The really interesting thing to note about this, if you look closely, is the scribes are not doubting the existence of Jesus' power. Do you notice that? They know that he's able to do some tricky stuff. And in Luke, we know, he healed the guy uh, by kicking this demon out. So what are they questioning? They're not questioning his miraculous ability. They're questioning the source of his miraculous ability. Where does that power come from? See, it's really hard. I mean... If you were standing there and a guy was mute and he'd been mute his whole life and Jesus comes along, kicks his demon out and he starts talking, it's like, no, that didn't happen. Everyone's going, you're an idiot, mate. All right, the guy's talking. He wasn't talking before, it's clear. So they can't kind of argue at that level. They're arguing about the source of it. It's really interesting. One of the things you can do uh, when you trace back the origin of the name uh, Beelzebul, one of the um, suggestions is that uh, the name actually came from the Syrian god of Ekron and it actually meant this the Lord of Carrion or Lord of the Flies, literally. And if you got right down into it, one commentator I read said it actually literally kind of means Lord of the Dung Heap. Now, for those of you who know anything about the devil, that's a really appropriate name, Lord of the Dung Heap, because that's his deal. The really interesting thing about the debate that's going on here, I'm just going to try and be careful here. Um, there's something of a similarity between this debate here and the origin of Islam. Okay? If you look into the origin of Islam, there is, and they're quite open about it, there was a question mark about Muhammad's first revelations that he had about whether they were coming from God or whether they were coming from the devil. <laughs> that's a really important difference. <laughs> okay it's like you get that one wrong and it's just not going to go well for you okay and you can be the judge as to uh whether you think uh muhammad has actually got that one right or not you see one of the things that demons do is demons start religions okay i'm going to say some controversial things here but hopefully you'll be okay we live in a, in a society that's very, uh, it's very multicultural and it's, it's very relativistic, it's very postmodern. nothing's absolutely right or absolutely wrong. But I just want to say to you today that every false religion, I think, biblically, and I'm going to give you some scriptures in a minute, actually has a demon operating behind it. Deuteronomy 32, verse 15 to 18, listen to this. But Jeshurun, which is Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. You notice that? They were actually demons. They weren't false gods ultimately. They were actually demons. To gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. 
you were mindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you, sorry, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, when he's talking about idols, says this, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, listen to him, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. These are strong words, right? You just need to know this morning that God is very, very intolerant toward idols. And I think that's why. Because idols are stirred up, promoted and created by demons. Now some of you might be sitting there and you're just kind of going, well, I've got a Buddhist friend. Now God is very, very loving toward people. Is that true? But he's not loving at all toward idols. If you only have to read the Old Testament, one of the classic um, strategies that God uses in the Old Testament about idols is to mock them and to make fun of them and just point out how stupid they are. God doesn't want his people to be deceived. And so we, in one sense, we have to walk the fine line, don't we? We have to walk the fine line of loving people and understanding people and accepting people but warring against false gods. For some of you, that's going to jar. That's going to be a little jarring. It's like, really? Am I going to go to my workmate who goes to the local Buddhist temple in town and tell them that there's a, there's a demon behind what they're doing? Well, that's a whole other question, isn't it, in terms of tactics and strategy, in terms of how you actually love people and look after people. Ravi Zacharias, who uh, was originally from India, um, had this... Um, Indian proverb used to say where he said uh, there's no point after cutting someone's nose off giving them a rose to smell and what he's really saying is you, you, you need to love people and you need to handle people well and our culture would say be tolerant and what they mean by saying be tolerant is don't say that anyone's wrong but that's not what being tolerant is being tolerant is saying that other people are wrong and loving them anyway does that make sense? That's what tolerance is. I'm telling you this morning, you need to be intolerant of false gods. Like crazily intolerant. I mean, what, is, what happens to the people of Israel after Moses comes back down, they made the golden calf, they grind it up and God makes them eat it? That's intolerance, right? Isn't it? That's intolerance. Now, I'm not telling you, don't go out there and start, you know, start firebombing the local Buddhist temple or the the prayer centre out at the uni, you know, for Islam, because Jesus loves people and he does love people from other religions, but you need to be really intolerant of other gods. And for those who've been around the project here long enough would know we've all got our own little idols that we worship. So it's not like they're the bad people out there because they're not worshipping Jesus. Well, we're the bad people in here too because we're not worshipping him all the time either. What does God tell us about the devil and demons? Well, let me give you a few things and then I'm going to tell you some things that we don't know about the devil and demons. One thing that we know about demons is that they can elicit spiritual power. They sometimes take a name. Uh, Demons will inspire miracles, healings. um, There'll be counterfeit signs that the Bible talks about and wonders uh, that they'll be able to do that look like God but they're actually going to distract people away from it. 
Uh, demons will be the source of information for channelers and mediums. And I'm just saying to you this morning, if you've ever been involved with channelers or mediums or any kind of new age kind of stuff, you seem to get out of it. You should not go anywhere near that. And some of you might go, yeah, well, good things have happened. They've actually said good things. Yeah, well, that's the way that lies work, isn't it? Like they're mostly good. So don't go near it. If it's not coming from God, you don't want to go near it. It's a demon deceiving you or a person deceiving you. Demons inspire false prophets. Demons work on disunity between brothers and sisters in the church and God's family. Demons generally and the devil generally, look, they basically just wreck stuff. All right? So you don't just go, oh, it was really nice. Well, it's going to wreck stuff. All right? It's going to wreck you. They're going to deceive you. The Bible's clear about the fact that the devil and the demons, they just lie all the time. So it's like, why would you listen to anyone other than God? Why would you? Why would you go to a channeler or a medium and just go, oh, they actually said something good. They said something about my dog Larry who's in heaven and he's sitting in his kennel and he's really happy, right? I don't care what's happening with Larry, all right? The whole point of the thing, everything the devil says is a lie meant to deceive you. But here's the thing. There's a real limit to what we know about the devil. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that maybe tell us a little bit. There's a classic scripture in Ezekiel, um, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, I may or may not read it. We'll just see. How we, are you okay? Is everyone okay so far? It's a bit intense for 8.30 on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Here's the, uh, the first scripture that's often cited about the fall of the devil. This is Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Does that sound like the devil? Yeah, it does, right? But here's the interesting thing about it, is that prophecy is actually about the king of Babylon. Okay, now it is possible in the Old Testament that you actually have prophecies that have a dual fulfilment. Okay, all I'm pointing out here is you can't just look at that and say that sounds like the devil, it's about the devil. Especially if it's clear about the fact that it was written about the king of Babylon. Now, is it possible that it might be? I think so. I think it's possible. It sounds very similar. But it may actually just be that the, the king of Babylon is a lot like the devil. All right? In the same way that the kings of the Old Testament were like Jesus, the king that was coming. Uh, Ezekiel 28, 11 to 17 uh, is another one that talks about the fall of the devil. And that's an even more problematic one. That one's written about the king of Tyre. And one commentator that I, that I read actually said this. I said, this could be almost the hardest passage to interpret in the whole Bible. Okay? So all I'm saying to you is this. You don't want to just grab passages like that in the Bible and just go, oh, that's the devil. All right? When there's a really smart commentator, for example, just going, this is really hard to understand what this exactly is talking about. You with me? So it might tell you something, but just be a little bit careful about it. All right? Um, And the big question is, well, actually, I'll show you one more. Revelation 12, 3 to 4. This seems to be a, a fair bit clearer. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, the great red dragon who is... Anyone know? Satan. Satan, the devil. With seven heads and ten horns. And on, You would look scary too if you had seven heads and ten horns. True? Um, 
And on his head, seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This is the one I'm talking about, um, or the one I'm referring to, and I'm saying it looks like the devil took about a third of the angels with him. Okay? It looks like that's the case, right? But you know what's really interesting? There's lots of hints about what's going on in the spiritual realm in the Bible, and there's some clear teaching about it sometimes, but it doesn't kind of satisfy us a lot of the time. You just kind of go, well, I want to know more than that. Even the scriptures about uh, the demon, uh, the fall of the devil in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, you just kind of go, well, is it about the devil? Is it not? Can God just give us a whole three chapters or something? That's just clearly about the devil, tells us all about it and how he intersects with things. Well, you know what? God doesn't always tell us. And as anyone who's been a Christian long enough knows that that's kind of how it works. God doesn't always tell you stuff, does he? Who's got questions about stuff in the Bible? Who's got questions about God? Yeah. So why doesn't he tell you stuff? Well, you know what? Because you don't need to know. That's why. Because he loves you and he tells you as much as you need to know. As we go through Mark, what's going to happen is uh, you'll hear a little bit more and more as we go about the, um, just the, the project's view on lots of different things that Jesus talks about because we're trying to be as close to Jesus as possible. Um, and one of the things you're going to find out more about is this whole thing about spiritual warfare and what we think about the devil and demons and angels and all that sort of stuff. Let me just add another little snapshot for you as to what we think. We actually think, uh, we kind of go along the lines of uh, the classical view of the church that trouble or temptation, evil, tends to come from three sources. The world, the flesh, which is a natural person like your own uh, tendencies, your own heart tendencies and the devil. Now, most of my life, I've split those three things off into three individual portions and, you'd, and tried to attribute, oh, that's trouble that's coming from the devil, that's trouble that's coming from the world and that's trouble that's coming from the flesh. But I've changed my mind. And what I think now is I actually think that those three components are actually present in every temptation and every trouble. Okay? So in one sense, what I've done is... For some of you, you just kind of think, well, he's just lessened the influence of the devil. Well, not really, because now I'm saying that every single trouble and temptation that you run into is going to have a demonic component. Every single trouble and temptation that you run into is going to have a world component and it's going to have a flesh component. So you've actually got a triumvirate. This is really encouraging, isn't it? You've got a triumvirate of evil, in a sense, that's kind of opposed to you. Okay? So you don't, uh, you don't just kind of look at Someone who looks like... I mean... See, this is why you should come to the second service, right? Because it's not quite as smooth in the first one. But anyway. Look, one of those might predominate. But the others are still present. So you can think about lots of different temptations and struggles that people might have. And I, I dare say that you'd be able to sit down and work out what the three... What might be happening in those three different components? So if we took something like covetousness that's in the top 10 list okay covetousness that's kind of wanting something that's not yours uh, kind of lusting after something in a non uh, not necessarily in a sexual way just lusting that's what lust is it's a thirst for more okay you could probably see what's kind of going on at a heart level for people in the flesh the flesh is if i get that i'm going to be okay that's going to satisfy me i'm going to get pleasure out of that the world the whole marketing machine is just gunning for it all right they're gunning to stir up desires in you 
uh, that where you believe that actually if you get that you're going to be okay and then you can kind of see the devil that's kind of core business like he'll just kind of go I just want you to get into anything that's not Jesus all right and if I can get any other savior for you that's not Jesus I'm going to get that for you does that make sense and so you get those three things kind of coming at you at the same time so I probably in a sense and uh, Diff and Nathan and I have talked about this the other leaders at the project here and that this is where we sit we think as a as a demonic component and a flesh component and a world component to all the troubles that we get tempted with and we have to walk through. This is a beautiful quote from uh, David Powlison. He says, Our enemy works within the fog of war and God does not explain all that goes on in the fog. He knows that's true. God tells us what we need to know. His purposes are always practical, never theoretical, so that we can live faithfully, courageously and fruitfully. He teaches us just enough so that we can oppose the flesh, the world and the devil that oppose Christ's glory and our welfare it's a good quote second thing today is that jesus has come to rescue you from this villain and hopefully by this point in time you're just kind of feeling that you just kind of go well it'd be really nice if someone helped me out with this you know because they've got these three enemies in a sense that are coming at me well the good news is that he has second part of mark 3 there uh, the, the passage that we read and he called to them and said to them in parables how can satan cast out satan if a kingdom is divided against itself the kingdom cannot stand and if a house is divided against itself the house will not be able to stand and if satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but is coming to an end and listen to this but no one can enter the strong man's house who's the strong man the devil no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods. Who do you reckon wants to enter it and plunder the goods? Who, call it out. Jesus does, right? And some of you are going, so he's a burglar. Yeah, absolutely. That's what he's doing. This is the best kind of burglary that you can have. Okay? Let's rob the devil. Like God's up there and he's going, hey, I've got a good idea. He sits down with the angels one day. We're going to beat up the devil and then steal his stuff. And they're, just, that's, they're going, that's perfect. That is the perfect plan. You ever seen like Ocean's 13 or something? They all sit down and that's perfect. That is a perfect plan. So no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then he can take whatever he wants. Isn't this good? And you know what the deal is? Is that you're actually, in the natural, humans are kind of stuck in the devil's world. We're kind of enslaved to sin we're under the, uh, the strong influence of the, uh, the devil. Listen to this from First uh, John 3 verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is... Yeah, see, this, is, this guy's all about love, right? Now, this is a really interesting thing. If, who's read First John here? Anyone? There's lots of really cool stuff about love. And then he comes out and he goes, listen, if you sin, you're of the devil. He's going, whoa, hang on. Where did that come from? But that's kind of what he does. I remember uh, with um, one of my sons a long time ago, I said to my son, um, he was just being really rebellious. And I said, you know, right now, you know who you've been like? And um, he goes, huh? I said, you, you just, you're like the devil. Now, I don't say this all the time. Some of you go, I don't know, it's, where's the number for docs? <laughs> Department of Child Safety, there's some spiritual abuse going on. I've only ever said this once. But, you know, that's kind of what First John's saying there, right? If you're sinning and rebelling, you're imaging the devil. And I just asked, I said, are you happy with that? Is that what you want to do? You want to image that? No, no, I don't actually want to do that at all. I want to image Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. But note this, 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He's been turning his back and rebelling on God. And some of you here today, maybe you're in that state. You're turning your back and you're rebelling against God. Maybe some of you had never known Jesus. Jesus wants to know you. He wants to know you in a relational way and he wants you to stop turning your back on him and rebelling against him. Listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. Now listen, what you've got to notice here is in this scripture, what's really clear to me is the, the weapon of mass destruction. All right, if we go back to the whole Iraq thing, the weapon of mass destruction that the devil has is what? Have a guess. Someone have a guess. Deception, yeah. Sorry, someone said it. Sin. <laughs> All right. It's like every time you sin, it's like you're filling up the devil's chamber and his rifle to take you down. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like you're arming a terrorist when you sin. And Jesus is kind of saying, here's what I've done. I've come to the earth and I've taken the weapon off the strong guy. It's kind of like, you know, you can imagine a house. Imagine if there was a guy in this hall here today and he had an AK-47 and a grenade on his belt. And he looks out over the hill and here comes a guy and he's got 17 Abrams tanks and attack helicopters. All right? A guy's not going to get it done. And this is kind of what's going on with Jesus and the devil. The devil's got his AK-47 sin and Jesus comes over the hill with all of his weaponry. He says, I am going to defang this guy. I'm going to take him down. Isn't that good? You guys excited about that? Okay. Here's another one from 1 John 5. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Does that freak anyone out here? Freaks me out. Do you realise in uh, first, uh, 1 John 1 verse 9 it says, if we confess our what? Sins. All right? So John knows that you're going to blow it. He's just talking about someone with a practice of sinning, someone who's determined to stay away from God and rebel against him. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. John knows that they do, but he's talking about something different. But he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, I'm not going to do a big exposition on 1 John 5 verse 18 to 19, but how do you reckon God protects you from the devil if the devil's main weapon is sin? Throw it out. Forgiveness. You get that? It's like, man, you can't touch me. Someone comes out in their house every now and then, can't touch this. <laughs> yeah, not because of me, not because of who I am, not because of who any of you are. Now, some of you might go, yeah, but he does. He does harass us. Yeah, but he can't win. He can't win. He might, you know, his, his AK-47 is gone. He might bite you on the arm every now and then. <laughs> but he can't take you down. Listen to this. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, that's kind of how, where I started this morning about the fact you live in a story that's got a villain. We live in a world that lies in the devil's power. Now, the really interesting thing about uh, the scribes, if we go back to the story here, is that they actually had really good evidence about Jesus, didn't they? And you know what? It didn't actually help them that much. And this is a, this is a, um, 
a reality that you will face, I'm sure, in your life, but also uh, with the people that you talk to about Jesus is, you know, evidence doesn't always get it done. I remember teaching a Christian studies class and we showed this uh, debate between um, a guy who did his PhD on the resurrection and uh, Anthony Flew, who at the time was the world's probably foremost, at least British, academic atheist. And, you know, we got to the end of uh, the video and they were very good friends, so it was very, a very amicable discussion. And the kids in my class said, so if he just agreed with 10 out of the 12 points of Gary Habermas, this is the atheist guy, why doesn't he become a Christian? And you know what the answer is? Because becoming a Christian isn't just about evidence. So no one ever noticed that? Like you can actually talk to someone and you can give them all the apologetics reasons, all the defence, all the, the facts about Christianity and it doesn't quite get it done, does it? Because there's something else going on and some of you would say today you'd say how do I know that he's come to rescue me how can I be sure there is a rescuer and he has come but you might miss him the scribes missed him they came down from Jerusalem to check him out to see what he was doing they weren't unsure about what Jesus was doing it's just that they thought he was evil he was doing amazing things that was true they don't deny the healing of the mute man but the evidence of what they had in front of them didn't actually help them. And what they were really saying is they're going, well, we don't know if Jesus is good or evil. We can see he's got some kind of spiritual authority. He's, he's pretty intriguing, um, but maybe he's not good. Maybe we can't trust him. Maybe he's not God, as he declares. We don't have enough evidence. And that's a classic agnostic position. I just need more evidence. You know, the agnostic really is saying, I'm God, I sit on a throne as a judge and Jesus needs to present to me all of the facts and findings to my liking so that I can render a verdict of deity or not deity. That's kind of what agnosticism does. They want to see more evidence. Yeah, he was born of a virgin, he lived without sin, he walked on water, he rose the dead, he cast out demons, he died and he returned to life three days later, but none of that was enough because the problem was not with the evidence. The problem with us once we've had the evidence is us that's what the problem is one thing that was said uh, by Ravi Zacharias again about apologetics is he says apologetics or giving the evidence or the defense for the faith the purpose of apologetics is to remove all the obstacles except for the moral obstacle at the end as to whether someone actually wants to submit to God or not Jesus told a story about the rich man and Lazarus and in the story um, it said um, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Because the plea was there, look, just if someone can come back from the dead, we'll be okay. Now, the, the issue is it won't be okay. And maybe there's some of you today where you just kind of go, well, if someone died, like if I literally died and I was declared clinically dead and then I rose, God rose me from the dead uh, 10 minutes later, it still wouldn't be enough for you. It wouldn't be enough. Because belief is not just about evidence in fact james chapter 2 verse uh, 19 to 20 um, james says you believe that god is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder now james is kind of saying he's going look the demons have probably got a more accurate response to the truth than you do and they actually have better theology i mean in one sense demons have much better theology than we do they know what's going on probably far clearer than we do. But you know what? It didn't have and it doesn't have any effect on them. 
So let me give you a couple of reasons why evidence is limiting. People have personal bias. Has anyone noticed this? That's no warning. So, nah, that's not my take. Pride. That's a huge one. Because you know you don't get into heaven unless you say, I'm really needy. Now, I met with a guy about a week ago who um, is not a Christian fellow, and I asked him, I said, listen, I said, uh, if you go to heaven and you meet up with Jesus at, uh, at the gates of heaven and Jesus says to you, why should I let you in? What are you going to say? And you know what he said? And he was really genuine about this and God's really working in his life. So I don't say this in a disparaging way, but he said this, he goes, um, I would kind of say to Jesus, I haven't had a perfect life, but I've kind of been okay. I've, I haven't done anything really that's that bad. And this guy is a very disciplined, he's a good man. But you know what? He's not good enough. No one's good enough to get in on their own, in their own right. And what he's going to have to work out whether he wants to do or not is, am I going to humble myself and say, I am completely needy and I need Jesus to, to help me? People can be unteachable. Anyone notice that? They can be willful. This is a really big one. We talk about it at the project quite a bit. People interpret all the time. So I can say things up here and people come up to me after church and they go, that was really good when you said that. And I just go, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> now, sometimes that's the Holy Spirit, right? Because the Holy Spirit can speak to people and say exactly what they need, need said to them. But also, it reveals the fact that people interpret. So you're not hearing what I'm saying, you're hearing your interpretation of what I'm saying. And your interpretation of what I'm saying is actually being coloured by life experience and knowledge and intellect and lots of different things. So evidence can be uh, a, a bit of a... Um, it can be kind of twisted and, and messed up a little bit by the fact that we're interpreters. Um, we can be deceived. And like no one knows when they're deceived, right? Because that's what deceived is. Like you don't know. Uh, and as we've said here at the project lots of times, you can be self-deceived. And that's kind of, you get the gong for that, right? You get the Grammy for that because it's like you don't need anyone else, all right? I can just do it on my, on my own. Can you guys just go away, please? And I'll completely deceive myself on my own. Thank you very much. Uh, we all do that a little bit. You can get tunnel vision. People have wisdom investments. You can come up to people and you can kind of suggest something to them. And all of a sudden, like, at some level, they kind of go, oh, I've invested in a particular way of living for the last 50 years of my life and you're now saying that I've invested in the wrong place and I need to switch to a different one. That's a big, that's a big deal to, to switch over. And sometimes um, that's just going to win over, over evidence. And you just can't tell some people, can you? You just can't. Point three, rescue is impossible if you malign the rescuer. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they are saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this has been a massive controversy in the church and it rages on, all right? If you want to completely confuse yourself, you can just go home and type in blasphemy of the Holy Spirit into YouTube and waste about half your life watching videos, all right? And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you what I think is the, uh, the best interpretation uh, based on the context and understanding uh, what Jesus is saying. But before I do that, do you notice something here about humanity? Humans have a way of just taking a bad situation and just making it worse, don't they? It's like 
Do you get it? Like the scribes um, are legalistic. They've got some kind of issue with Jesus. They don't know what to do with his healings. And what do they do? Well, he's working with the devil. <laughs> so let's just take, let's just make it worse. Let's tell him he's got the devil inside of him. Um, and, and then when you think about it, you just go, well, it's just a long line of humans just taking something that's a bit of a problem and just making it worse. So Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they blow it against God. What do they do? Well, we just need to hide. And we need to get some really uncomfortable leaves and turn them into clothes and hide in the bushes. That's going to work, isn't it? Because God can't see through bushes. He just made them. That's, he doesn't know how to do that. What about, uh, has anyone here ever, um, when you've been found out about something, you, you lie about it? Has anyone? I did it to a pastor. Is it, can anyone better me? <laughs> I did. I did. I was working in a Christian school, this Christian school, and the pastor lent me a CD and got, said, have a listen to this. This is really good. He, um, and then about, I didn't. And then about two weeks later, he kind of goes, how was that CD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the vague one. Yeah, yeah. Then he goes, "Um, yeah, what about that song? My car makes me sin. And I'm just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going, no, no, no. I've just lied to a pastor and I'm going to hell. (laughs) No, not really. But do you see that? What is it? I've ended up in a dodgy situation and I've just kind of made it worse by the way I've handled it. You notice people who get angry, it's very, very rare for someone who gets angry to stop right in the middle of being angry. Isn't that true? They tend to just get more angry, make the situation worse. Humans tend to make things worse. And so what are the, uh, what are the scribes doing? They're saying, no, nah, Jesus is doing something special. He's doing something miraculous, but he's using the power of the devil to actually do it. Now, at this point in time, I want to ask you, what do you think this actually, you don't have to answer this, but what does this say about the Holy Spirit? It says something astronomically evil about the Holy Spirit, and I'll tell you why. If we look at what the Holy Spirit's role is in the Scriptures, you'll see this. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I, Jesus, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. If you just look at that Scripture, you just know straight up there, well, the Holy Spirit's helping people to know, helping the disciples to remember and to know and to be in a really good way, kind of confronted with the character and the person of Jesus and what Jesus has said on a regular basis. All right? You get that? So it's just kind of saying, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to tell you about Jesus. Okay, that's the first thing. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the what? Okay, so another job of the Holy Spirit is to help you to see the truth. Yeah, I hope some of you are starting to gather here, you just kind of go, oh, okay, so that's going to be a really bad thing if you say the Holy Spirit is the devil. Is anyone with me on that? If that's his job, if his job is to remind you about Jesus and to guide you into truth, calling him the devil is a really bad call. John 3, verse 5 to 6, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You know what Jesus is saying here? Is he's saying the way that you actually become a Christian is through the Holy Spirit. He does a work in you, and you actually, that's, that's how you come to Jesus. In uh, June last year, I uh, went over with a, uh, a mate of mine from Sydney and did some training in, in Philadelphia at a biblical counselling organisation over there. And you know what I wanted to do from the very start is I actually wanted to get to meet some of the bigwigs over there, all right? But I'm like 
dude from Australia who we've never heard of before. He lives in a city that's got 100,000 people in it. Yeah, like, we're going to let you see some of our guys, all right? Um, but the really cool thing was at the time I was undergoing counselling supervision through one of the counsellors at, at this organisation called CCF. And she goes, here's the people you need to talk to and I'm going to let them know that you're going to be contacting them. And you know what happened? I ended up having a meeting with one of the head guys over there. And when we got over there, we ended up having meetings all over the place with head guys. Why did that all happen? Well, I think a large part of the reason why that happened is because I had someone who networked me with the people and said, I know this guy, you should meet with him. And you know what? That's what the Holy Spirit does with regard to Jesus. He's kind of going, I'm going to get you to Jesus. He's kind of the ultimate networker, the ultimate connector. And I hope you can see there, if you actually turn around and you say, the devil, like if you're the scribes and you turn around and you say, the devil is actually the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit's not the Holy Spirit. You've actually done something really, really dumb. You with me? It's like the whole cut the branch off that you're sitting on. Yeah, good call. You guys did a really good job. Yeah, bravo. <laughs> All right. Yeah, good. Because you're not going to get saved unless you get to Jesus. And what you've just done is you've just insulted and turned against the Holy Spirit. And this is what I think Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If you malign the Holy Spirit and you turn against the Holy Spirit, you actually cut off your only opportunity of being saved. That is your only opportunity. Now, I don't think that Jesus is talking about an individual sin. Apparently, uh, Diff was telling me the other day that there's a whole campaign on YouTube where people just blaspheme the Holy Spirit and tell him, He's a loser. I think what Jesus is saying here is this sin is an ongoing, present, kind of continuous sin of maligning and not wanting to have anything to do with the person who connects you to the rescuer. I want to show you a uh, clip from the movie The Guardian. The Guardian's got Kevin Costner in it. That doesn't necessarily make it good, uh, as many of you would know. But uh, the opening scene of uh, The Guardian is uh, a scene... Um, well, the whole movie's about the, uh, the Coast Guard and going out and rescuing people in trouble who have fallen into the ocean. So I just thought I'd show you a clip of that. Get out! What's wrong with you? 
How stupid would it be to hack on the one that gets you to the chopper? That's really dumb. How stupid would it be to say that the one that gets you to the chopper is evil? How insane would it be to refuse him? And Jesus is saying today that it, you will not be saved if you refuse him. You will not. See, in a sense, the, uh, the helicopter is, is Jesus and the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is the rescue swimmer there. He's trying to get people to Jesus. And what we find from him, and you, you look at that and you're just going to go, oh man, there's some people in a really dire situation. Like you'd, only be, you'd have to be insane not to take help in that situation. But who here knows that's what we see in our world, isn't it? That's what we do a little bit too sometimes, is we get into trouble, we get into strife and we find a different saviour. We don't need, we kind of think, I don't need that saviour. I'll go and get my own one, thanks. Even in spite of the fact that Isaiah 43 verse 11 says, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no saviour. Now, am I saying that Christians commit the unforgivable sin? No, I don't. I'm not saying that and I don't think Jesus is saying that. I'm just saying that you can see there's just a little bit of similarity there sometimes. Although nowhere near as aggressively, you can see that when you don't turn to God in your trouble, like the scribes are in trouble, and you say that the connector to the rescuer is evil, you've just cut off all chance of being rescued. And that's what Jesus says. Why don't you stand with me? I'd love it if you just, um, if you'd be happy to close your eyes. I'm going to read a scripture. Because it may be that there's some people here who haven't, said yes I want to be rescued 
And I want to encourage you today to say yes. Say yes. Let the Holy Spirit take you to Jesus. In the book of Jonah, Jonah goes the opposite direction that God wants him to go. And when it gets bad in the boat, Jonah's option is not actually to turn to God, but actually say to the guys, just throw me out. I'm the one who's causing this mess. And sitting in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally turns to the rescuer. If you'd be happy to close your eyes, I'm just going to read this and pray. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He knew what it was like to be in a stormy ocean. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. God, let there not be one person here today who forsakes steadfast love. Why, why would any human turn away from you? Such an incredibly insulting thing to say the Holy Spirit who connects us to you, Jesus, is evil. But we do see sometimes in us the, the way that we can turn away from you sometimes. We don't commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but we do find other saviours, other things that we think are going to be saviours. God, I pray that the project would be known as the church where no one misses out on steadfast love. No one misses out on your kindness. No one misses out on knowing you. No one gets left in the ocean. Everyone gets to be with you. Everyone gets to know you and to walk with you.